Well, we're going to speak of the devil. My name is Reverend Campbell, and uh, today we're going to be reading just a little book. Something I had on the shelf. I was like, hey, it's here. I'm here. You're here. Let's read it. Huh? <laughs> now, this is for a different project, but I figured might as well do it on this channel because it is overtly satanic, and, uh, you know, so are we. Let me give a quick shout out to the people in the chat room before I begin. Sparkling, how you doing? Valeria, hi. Zachary, my man. What up? Nadine, how are you doing? Austin, thanks for joining us. Pushing. <laughs> uh, not quite Bible study, just Bible reading, I suppose, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Uh, Necro, J-Dub, Val uh, Stephanie, hi, how are you? Uh, Robert, what's up, man? Austin, crazy. Oma, and anyone else joining after the fact and uh, throughout the conversation here. So let me sort of frame what we're going to be doing here today. <clears throat> I had like a completely clear throat up until halfway through the day, and I started getting a little, uh, a little uh, tingle, a little, uh, I don't know what, a little frog or something all up in there. So we're going to fight through it together. Cooking with Satan, <laughs> Josh Mosh. I dig it. I like that. Uh, thank you. Uh, hopefully we get to satanic magic in this one. I don't know. We should be able to. Um, essentially, this is just a hangout session. I mean, that really, that's what this is, okay? So I'm going to read uh, chapter by chapter as much as I can. And you guys just sort of chill out. At the end of each little segment, I'm going to have a short, brief conversation with you. A brief short. A conversation about briefs and shorts with you. It'll be fun. If you don't like it, jump out. If you dig it, hang in. Lauren, it's been too long. How are you, my dear? Uh, okay, so that's going to be the meat and potatoes of this. I hope you guys are into it. I hope you dig it. And here's something that I want you guys to uh, keep in the, the brain matter of yours. If you have any questions or comments about the content that I am reading through, you have a chat room full of people that is willing to have those conversations with you. So by all means, have those conversations. That's what's going to make this an interesting little journey for us all, right? So uh, chat it up, have fun, say hi to old uh, chat room friends that you haven't seen in a little while. It'll be a good time, I hope. It'll be good. All right, let's start. We left off last time <clears throat> with the essay Love and Hate, which means ah, Satanic Sex is next. I love Satanic Sex. Oh, man. Okay, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to have a Q&A, okay? So, and I'm going to review some of your answers after this chapter. This is kind of a big one. So, what element of sex can you not go without? So, for example, uh, you need physical touch because you want to be with someone else. Or you need someone to nibble on your ear. Or you need to feel uh, the, the dimples in uh, an ass or a thigh. Or, you know, what is it? Maybe you just got to get it in. Maybe you want it to go down. What is the one thing that without you could not have a satisfying sex life? Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> and I'll just dive in, huh? Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. Scent. Ooh, I like that, Omar. <clears throat> Satanic sex. Much controversy has arisen over the satanic views of free love. It is often assumed that sexual activity is the most important factor of the satanic religion, and that willingness to participate in sex orgies is a prerequisite for becoming a Satanist. 
nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, opportunists, who have no deeper interest in Satanism than merely the sexual aspects and emphatically are emphatically discouraged. Satanism does advocate sexual freedom, but only in the true sense of the word. Free love, in the satanic concept, means exactly that. Freedom to either be faithful to one's person or to indulge your sexual desires with as many others as you feel is necessary to satisfy your particular needs. Satanism does not encourage orgiastic activity or extramarital affairs for those whom they do not come naturally. For many, it would be very unnatural and detrimental to be unfaithful to their chosen mates. To others, it would be frustrating to be bound sexually to just one person. Each person must decide for himself what form of sexual activity best suits his individual needs. Self-deceitfully forcing yourself to be adulterous or to have sex partners when not married for the sake of proving to others, or worse yet yourself, that you are emancipated from sexual guilt is just as wrong by satanic standards as leaving any sexual need unfulfilled because of ingrained feelings of guilt. Many of those who are constantly preoccupied with demonstrating their emancipation from sexual guilt are in reality held in even greater sexual bondage than those who simply accept sexual activity as a natural part of life and don't make a big to-do over their sexual freedom. For example, it is an established fact that the nymphomaniac, every man's dream girl and heroine of all lurid novels, is not sexually free but is actually frigid and roves from man to man because she is too inhibited to ever find complete sexual release. Another misconception is the idea that ability to engage in group sexual activity is indicative of sexual freedom. All contemporary free sex groups have one thing in common, discouragement of fetishistic or deviant activity. Actually, the most forced examples of non-fetishistic sexual activity, thinly disguised as freedom, have a common format. Each of the participants in an orgy removes all clothing, following the example set forth by one, and mechanically fornicate, also following their leader example. None of them performs considered, uh, none of the performers consider that their emancipated form of sex might be regarded as regimented and infantile by non-members who fail to equate uniformity with freedom. The Satanist realizes that if he is to be considered, uh, I'm sorry, that if he is to be a sexual connoisseur and truly free from sexual guilt, he cannot be stifled by the so-called sexual revolutionists. And more than he can bite, uh, I'm sorry, and more than he can by the prudery of his guilt-ridden society. These free sex clubs miss the whole point of sexual freedom. Unless sexual activity can be expressed on an individual basis, which includes personal fetishes, there is absolutely no purpose in belonging to a sexual freedom organization. Satanism condones any type of sexual activity which properly satisfies your individual desires, be it heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or even asexual, if you choose. Satanism also sanctions any fetish or deviation which will enhance your sex life, so long as it involves not one who does not wish to be involved. The prevalence 
the prevalence of deviant and or fetishistic behavior in our society would stagger the imagination of the sexually naive. There are more sexual variants than the unenlightened individual can perceive. Transvestism, sadism, masochism, urolagnia, exhibitionism, to name only a few of the more predominant. Everyone has some form of fetish. But because they are unaware of the preponderance of fetishistic activity in our society, they feel they are depraved if they submit to their unnatural yearnings. Even the asexual has a deviation, his asexuality. It is far more abnormal to have a lack of sexual desire, unless illness or old age or another valid reason has caused the wane, than it is to be sexually promiscuous. However, if a Satanist chooses sexual sublimation above overt sexual expression, that is entirely his own affair. In many cases of sexual sublimation or asexuality, any attempt to emancipate himself sexually would prove devastating to the asexual. Asexuals are invariably sexually sublimated by their jobs or hobbies. All the energy and driving interests which would normally be devoted to sexual activity is channeled into other pastimes or into their chosen occupations. If a person favors other interests over sexual activity, it is his own right, and no one is justified in condemning him for it. However, the person should at least recognize the fact that this is a sexual sublimation. Because of lack of opportunity for expression, many secret sexual desires never progress beyond the fantasy stage. Lack of release often leads to compulsion, and therefore, a great number of people devise undetectable methods of giving vent to their urges. Just because most fetishistic activity is not outwardly apparent, the sexually unsophisticated should not delude himself into thinking it does not exist. To cite examples of this ingenious technique used, the male transvestite will indulge in his fetish by wearing feminine undergarments while going about his daily activities. Or the masochistic woman might wear a rubber girdle several sizes too small, so she may derive sexual pleasure from her fetishistic discomfort throughout the day, with no one the wiser. These illustrations are far tamer and more prevalent examples than others which could have been given. Satanism encourages any form of sexual expression you may desire, so long as it hurts no one else. This statement must be qualified to avoid misinterpretation. By not hurting another, this does not include the unintentional hurt feelings by those who might not agree with your views on sex because of their anxieties regarding sexual morality. Naturally, you should avoid offending others who mean a great deal to you, such as prudish friends and relatives. However, if you earnestly endeavor to escape hurting them, and despite your efforts, they accidentally find out, you cannot be held responsible, and therefore should feel no guilt as a result of either your sexual convictions or their being hurt because of those convictions. If you are in constant fear of offending the prudish by your attitude towards sex, then there's no sense in trying to emancipate yourself from sexual guilt. However, no purpose is served by flaunting your permissiveness. The other exception to the rule regards dealing with masochists. A masochist derives pleasure from being hurt, so denying the masochist his pleasure through pain hurts him just as much as an actual physical pain hurts the non-masochist. The story of the truly cruel sadist illustrates this point. 
The masochist says to the sadist, Beat me! To which the merciless sadist replies, No! If a person wants to be hurt and enjoys suffering, then there is no reason not to indulge him in this want. The term sadist, in popular usage, describes one who obtains pleasure from indiscriminate brutality. Actually, though, a true sadist is selective. He carefully chooses from the vast reserve of appropriate victims and takes great delight in giving those who thrive on misery the fulfillment of their desires. The well-adjusted sadist is epicurean in selecting those on whom his energies will be well spent. If a person is healthy enough to admit he is a masochist and enjoys being enslaved and whipped, the real sadist is glad to oblige. Aside from the foregoing exceptions, the Satanists would not intentionally hurt others by violating their sexual rights. If you attempt to impose your sexual desires upon others who do not welcome your advances, you are infringing upon their sexual freedom. Therefore, Satanism does not advocate rape, child molesting, sexual defilement of animals, or any other form of sexual activity which entails the participation of those who are unwilling or whose innocence or naivete would allow them to be intimidated or misguided into doing something against their wishes. If all parties involved are mature adults who willingly take full responsibility of their actions and voluntarily engage in the given form of sexual expression, even if it is generally considered taboo, then there's no reason for them to repress their sexual inclinations. If you are aware of all the implications, advantages, and disadvantages and are certain your actions will hurt no one who does not wish or deserve to be hurt, you have no cause to suppress your sexual preferences. Just as no two people are exactly the same in their choice of diet or have the same capacity for the consumption of food, sexual tastes and appetites vary from person to person. No person or society has the right to set limitations on the sexual standards or the frequency of sexual activity of another. Proper sexual conduct can only be judged within the context of each individual situation. Therefore, what one person considers sexually correct and moral may be frustrating to another. The reverse is also true. One person may have great sexual prowess, but it is unjust for him to belittle another whose sexual capacity may not equal his own, and inconsiderate for him to impose himself upon the other person, i.e., a man who has a voracious sexual appetite, but whose wife's sexual needs do not match his own. It is unfair for him to expect her to enthusiastically respond to his overtures, but she must display the same degree of thoughtfulness. In the instances when she does not feel great passion, she should either passively, but pleasantly, accept him sexually, or raise no complaint if he chooses to find his need release elsewhere, including auto-erotic practices. The ideal relationship is one in which the people are deeply in love with one another and are sexually compatible. However, perfect relationships are relatively uncommon. It is important to note out here, uh, I'm sorry, to point out here that spiritual love and sexual love can, but do not necessarily, go hand in hand. If there is a certain amount of sexual compatibility, often it is limited, and some, but not all, of the sexual desires will be fulfilled. There is no greater sexual pleasure than that derived from association with someone you deeply love, if you are sexually well-suited. 
If you are not suited to one another sexually, though, it must be stressed that the lack of sexual compatibility does not indicate lack of spiritual love. One can, and often does, exist without the other. As a matter of fact, often one member of a couple will resort to outside sexual activity because he deeply loves his mate and wishes to avoid hurting or imposing upon his loved one. Deep spiritual love is enriched by sexual love, and it is certainly a nece uh, necessary ingredient for any satisfactory relationship. But because of differing sexual predilections, outside sexual activity or masturbation sometimes provides a needed supplement. Masturbation, considered a sexual taboo by many people, creates a guilt problem not easily dealt with. Much emphasis must be placed on this subject, as it constitutes an extremely important ingredient of many a successful magical working. Ever since the Judeo-Christian Bible described the sin of Onan, Genesis 38, 7-10, man has considered the seriousness and consequences of the solitary vice. Even though modern sexologists have explained the sin of Onan as simply coitus interruptus, the damage has been done through the centuries of theological misinterpretation. Aside from actual sex crimes, masturbation is one of the most frowned upon sexual acts. During the last century, innum innumerable texts were written describing the horrific consequences of masturbation. Practically all physical or mental illness were attributed to the evils of masturbation. Pallor of the complexion, shortness of breath, furtive expression, sunken chest, nervousness, pimples, and loss of appetite are only a few of the many characteristics supposedly resulting from masturbation. Total physical and mental collapse was assured if one did not heed the warnings in those handbooks for young men. The lurid descriptions in such texts would be almost humorous were it not for the unhappy fact that even though contemporary sexologists, doctors, writers, etc. have done much to remove the stigma of masturbation, the deep-seated guilts induced by the nonsense in those sexual primers have been only partially erased. A large percentage of people, especially those over 40, cannot emotionally accept the fact that masturbation is natural and healthy, even if they now accept it intellectually, and they in turn relate their repugnance, often subconsciously, to their children. It was thought that one would go insane if, despite numerous admonitions, his autoerotic practices persisted. This preposterous myth grew from reports of widespread masturbation by the inmates of mental institutions. It was assumed that since almost all incurably insane people masturbated, it was their masturbation that had driven them mad. No one ever stopped to consider that the lack of sexual partners of the opposite sex and the freedom from inhibition, which is a characteristic of in extreme insanity, were the real reasons for the masturbatory practices of the insane. Many people would rather have their mates seek out sexual activity that perform autoerotic acts because of their own guilt feelings, the mate's repugnance towards having them engage in masturbation, or the fear of their mate's repugnance. Although in a surprising number of cases, the vicarious thrill is obtained from the knowledge that the mate is having sexual experiences with outsiders, although this is seldom admitted. 
If uh, stimulation is provided by envisioning one's mates sexually engaged with others, this should be brought out into the open where both parties may gain from such activities. However, if the prohibition of masturbation is only due to guilt feelings on the part of one or both parties, they should make every attempt to erase those guilts or utilize them. Many relationships might be saved from destruction if the people involved did not feel guilt about performing the natural act of masturbation. Masturbation is regarded as evil because it produces pleasure derived from intentionally fondling a forbidden area of the body by one's own hand. The guilt feelings accompanying most sexual acts can be assuaged by the religiously acceptable contention that your sensual desires, I'm sorry, sensual delights are necessary to produce offspring, even though you cautiously watch the calendar for the safe days. You cannot, however, placate yourself with this rationale while engaging in masturbatory practices. No matter what you've been told about the immaculate conception, even if blind faith allows you to swallow this absurdity, you know full well if you are to produce a child, there must be sexual contact with a person of the opposite sex. If you feel guilty for committing the original sin, you certainly will feel even deeper guilt for performing a sex act only for self-gratification, with no intention of creating children. The Satanist fully realizes why religionists declare masturbation to be sinful. Like all other natural acts, people will do it, no matter how severely reprimanded. Causing guilt is an important facet of their malicious scheme to obliterate, I'm sorry, to obligate people to atone for sins by paying the mortgages on temples of abstinence. Even if a person is no longer struggling under the burden of religiously induced guilt, or thinks he isn't, modern man still feels shame if he yields to his masturbatory desires. A man may feel robbed of his masculinity if he satisfies himself autoerotically rather than engaging in the competitive game of woman chasing. A woman may satisfy herself sexually, but yearns for the ego gratification that comes from the sport of seduction. Neither the quasi-Casanova nor bogus vamp feels adequate when reduced to masturbation for sexual gratification. Both would prefer even an inadequate partner. Satanically speaking, though, it is far better to engage in a perfect fantasy than to cooperate in an unrewarding experience with another person. With masturbation, you are in complete control of the situation. To illustrate the undebatable fact that masturbation is an entirely normal and healthy practice, it is performed by all members of the animal kingdom. Human children will also follow their instinctive masturbatory desires unless... They have been scolded for it by their indignant parents, who are undoubtedly berated for it by their parents, and so on down the retro, um, retrocendent line. It is unfortunate, but true, that the sexual guilts of parents will immutably be passed on to their children. In order to save our children from the ill-fated sexual destiny of our parents, grandparents, and possibly ourselves, the perverted moral code of the past must be exposed for what it is, a pragmatically organized set of rules which, if rigidly obeyed, would destroy us. Unless we emancipate ourselves from the ridiculous sexual standards of our present society, including the so-called sexual revolution, the neurosis caused by those stifling regulations will persist. 
Adherence to the sensible and humanistic new morality of Satanism can and will evolve society in which our children can grow up healthy and without the devastating moral encumbrances of our existing sick society. Uh, that was that. <laughs> Lots of masturbation talk. I gotta say, uh, as a fan, I don't mind it so much, but there was a lot in here that, uh, <laughs> I feel like is ripe for, uh, examination. It's out of the context of this show, so understand I'm not going to do it. But, yeah, you know, I think it would be worth an examination at some point. All right, people, uh, let me see. You had your volume up. <laughs> Reading anti-masturbation. Uh, <laughs> J-Dub. Oh, yeah, I love boobs, too. All right, so what did you guys say? Did you say anything about um, what you couldn't do without? Thanks, Austin. I appreciate it, man. Blindness and hairy palms. Yeah, due to masturbation. Man, you guys were quiet when I was reading that. What's going on with that? thought you guys were going to have conversations and stuff. Okay. So for me, like what I couldn't do without, um, man, my, my video is like freezing up on me. I hope it's not freezing up for you guys too. Um, the feeling of like a nipple on my palm, like a, a stiff nipple or pubic hair on my hand as I'm sliding my hand south. I love that. Oh my gosh. I think it's so great. Um, <laughs> Jada. Yeah, okay, I dig it. Um, I am freezing up. What the hell? What is going on? Do I have something running in the background? No, I don't think I do. That's weird. Alright. Well, hopefully it doesn't uh, affect anything. Alright, so this next one we're going to be doing, not all vampires suck blood. We're talking psychic vampires here, people. I know all of you have run across these, or maybe are, or have been. Uh, I guess that's a good question. Here's a question, and, and while I'm reading, think about it and let me know your opinion. Uh, if you learn that you are acting like a uh, psychic vampire, are you capable of turning it around and getting out of it? Like, can you reform yourself from being a psychic vampire? Uh, I think that would be an interesting thought experiment. Because that would mean that it's a choice and not a natural state of being. And I think the argument that's going to be made is that it is a natural state of being for some. So, uh, yeah, think about that. And let me know what you think. <clears throat> First. <clears throat> All right. This dude is. Oh, yeah. I'm not used to this yet. Oh, probably not sparkling. Uh, Austin, I am drinking an old vine Zinfandel red wine. Not all vampires suck blood. Satanism represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. Many people who walk the earth practice the fine art of making others feel responsible and even indebted to them without cause. Satanism observes these leeches in their true light. 
Psychic vampires are individuals who drain others of their vital energy. This type of person can be found in all avenues of society. They feel no useful purpose in our lives and are neither love objects nor true friends. Yet we feel responsible to the psychic vampire without knowing why. If you think you may be the victim of such a person, there are a few simple rules which will help you form a decision. Is there a person you often call or visit, even though you really don't want to, because you know you will feel guilty if you don't? Or do you find yourself constantly doing favors for one who doesn't come forward and ask, but hints? Often the psychic vampire will use reverse psychology saying, oh, I couldn't ask you to do that and you in turn insist upon doing it. The psychic vampire never demands anything of you. That would be far too presumptuous. They simply let their wishes be known in subtle ways, which will prevent them from being considered pests. They wouldn't think of imposing and are always content to willingly accept their lot without the slightest complaint outwardly. Their sins are not of commission, but of omission. It's what they don't say, not what they do say, that makes you feel you must account to them. They are much too crafty to make overt demands upon you because you know you would rescind it and would have a tangible and legitimate reason for denying them. A large percentage of these people have special attributions which make their dependence upon you more feasible and much more effective. Many psychic vampires are invalids, or pretend to be, or are mentally or emotionally disturbed. Others might feign ignorance or incompetence, so you will, out of pity or more often exasperation, do things for them. The traditional way to banish a demon or elemental is to recognize it for what it is and exercise it. Recognition of these modern-day demons and their methods is the only antidote for their devastating hold over you. Most people accept these passively vicious individuals at face value only because their insidious maneuvers have never been pointed out to them. They merely accept these poor souls as being less fortunate than themselves and feel they must help them however they can. It is this misdirected sense of responsibility or unfounded sense of guilt which nourishes well the altruisms upon these parasites feet uh, upon which these parasites feast the psychic vampire is allowed to exist because he cleverly chooses uh, conscientious responsible uh, people for his victims people with great dedication to their moral obligations in some cases we are vampirized by groups of people as well as individuals Every fundraising organization, be it a charitable foundation, community council, religious or fraternal association, etc., carefully selects a person who is adept at making others feel guilty for its chairman or coordinator. It is the job of this chairman to intimidate us into opening first our hearts and then our wallets to the recipient of their goodwill, never mentioning that, in many cases, their time is not unselfishly donated but that they are drawing a fat salary for their noble deeds. They are masters at playing upon the sympathy and consideration of responsible people. How often we see little children who have been sent forth by these self-righteous faggins to painlessly extract donations from the kindly, who can resist the innocent charm of a child, 
They are, of course, people who are not happy unless they are giving. But many of us do not fit into this category. Unfortunately, we are often put upon to do things we do not genuinely feel should be required of us. A conscientious person finds it very difficult to decide between voluntary and imposed charity. He wants to do what is right and just and finds it perplexing trying to decide exactly what he should help and what degree of aid should rightfully be expected of him. Each person must decide for himself what his obligations are to his respective friends, family, and community before donating his time and money to those outside his immediate family and close circle of friends, he must decide what he can afford without depriving them closest to him. When taking these things into consideration, he must be certain to include himself among those who mean most to him. He must carefully evaluate the validity of the request and the personality or motives of the person asking it of him. It is extremely difficult for a person to learn to say no when all his life he has said yes. But unless he wants to be constantly taken advantage of, he must learn to say no when circumstances justify doing so. If you allow them, psychic vampires will gradually infiltrate your everyday life until you have no privacy left, and your constant feeling of concern for them will deplete you of all ambition. A psychic vampire will always select the person who is relatively content and satisfied with his life, a person who is happily married, pleased with his job, and generally well-adjusted to the world around him to feed upon. The very fact that the psychic vampire chooses to victimize a happy person shows that he is lacking all the things his victim has. He will do everything he can to stir up trouble and disharmony between his victim and those people he holds dear. Therefore, be wary of anyone who seems to have no real friends and no apparent interest in life except you. He will usually tell you he's very selective in his choice of friends or doesn't make friends easily because of the high standards he sets for himself. To acquire and keep friends, one must be willing to give of himself, something of which the psychic vampire is incapable. But he will hasten to add that you fulfill every requirement, and are truly an outstanding exception among men. You are the one of the few worthy of his friendship. Lest you confuse desperate love, which is a very selfish thing, with psychic vampirism, the vast difference between the two must be clarified. The only way to determine if you are being vampirized is to weigh what you give the person compared to what they give you in return. You may at times become annoyed by the obligations put upon you by a loved one, a close friend, or even an employer. But before you label them a psychic vampire, you must ask yourself, what am I getting in return? If your spouse or love insists that you call them frequently, but you also require them to account to you for their time spent away from you, you must realize this is a give-and-take situation. Or, if a friend is in the habit of calling upon you for help at an inopportune moment, but you similarly depend upon them to give your immediate needs priority, you must regard it as a fair exchange. If your employer asks you to do little more than is normally expected of you in your particular position, but will overlook occasional tardiness or will give you time off when you need it, you certainly have no cause for complaint and need not feel he has taken advantage of you. You are, however, being vampirized 
if you are incessantly called upon or expected to do favors for someone who, when you need a favor, always happens to have other pressing obligations. Many psychic vampires will give you material things for the express purpose of making you feel you owe them something in return, thereby binding you to them. The difference between your giving and theirs is that you, uh, your return payment must come in a non-material form. They want you to feel obligated to them and will be very disappointed and even resentful if you attempt to repay them with material objects. In essence, you have sold your soul to them and they'll constantly remind you of your duty to them by not reminding you. Being purely satanic, the only way to deal with a psychic vampire is to play dumb and act as though they are genuinely altruistic and really expect nothing in return. Teach them a lesson by graciously taking what they give you, thanking them loudly enough for all to hear, and walking away. In this way, you come out the victor. What can they say? And when you are invariably expected to repay their generosity, this is the hard part, you say no. But again, graciously. When they feel you falling from their clutches, two things will happen. First, they'll act crushed, hoping your old feeling of duty and sympathy will return. And when and if it doesn't, they will show their true colors and will become angry and vindictive. Once you have moved them to this point, you can play the role of the injured party. After all, you've done nothing wrong. You just happen to have had pressing obligations when they needed you, and since nothing was expected in return for their gifts, there should be no hard feelings. Generally, the psychic vampire will realize his methods have been discovered and will not press the issue. He will not continue to waste his time with you, but will move on to his next unsuspecting victim. There are times, however, when the psychic vampire will not release his hold so easily and will do everything possible to torment you. They have plenty of time for this because when once uh, rejected, they will neglect all else, what little else they have, that is, to devote their every waking moment to planning the revenge to which they feel they are entitled. For this reason, it is best to avoid a relationship with this kind of person in the first place. Their adulation and dependence upon you may, at first, be very flattering, and their material gifts may be uh, very attractive but you will eventually find yourself paying for them many times over. Don't waste your time with people who will ultimately destroy you, but concentrate instead on those who will appreciate your responsibility to them and likewise feel responsible to you. And if you are a psychic vampire, take heed. Beware of the Satanist. He is ready and willing to gleefully drive the proverbial stake through your heart. <laughs> Not bad, right? Pretty badass, man. Um, all right, what do we have here? Oh, dog's my co-pilot. How you doing? Good to see you driving. All right, be careful. Oh, there's so much going on here. What are you guys talking about? Um, I want to. I'm going to do the case study that I saw here. Austin, I was in Iceland last November when you had the Patreon bit going on and wanted to send you a bottle of Floki sheep. Oh, I thought that was going to be a case study of what we're talking about. Um, 
Trooper Satan's real Ezreal's cheap knockoffs. Here, here. There's a difference between preying on people. However, useful idiots do exist. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, I'm very selective and elitist when choosing friends and or companions. Yeah, so here's the question. Did you guys uh, answer it? Is it possible to realize if you are a psychic vampire and reform yourself? Is that even the cards at all? Or is that your only card to play? Is that your lot in life if you are of that ilk? I think the end of this essay is interesting because he's speaking to the psychic vampire saying, watch out, Satanists know your game and we're not going to put up with it. But does a psychic vampire actually know their game? Are they just victims of their circumstance? I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. Again, outside the context of this show. All right, what do we have next? Indulgence, not compulsion. <laughs> That's good. All right, what do you guys like to uh, indulge in? And does it ever leak over into being a compulsion? And are you able to step back? I struggle. Do you? What do you think? Uh, it's a matter of debate, especially since many other satanic groups are inspired or directly ranch off from the CS. I feel like you guys are having a completely different conversation, which is okay. It's just hard for me to dive into it. Uh, okay, here we go. Let's do this. Indulgence, not compulsion. The highest plateau of human development is the awareness of the flesh. Satanism encourages its followers to indulge in their natural desires. Only by doing, uh, only by so doing, can you be a completely satisfied person with no frustrations which can be harmful to yourself and others around you. Therefore, the most simplified description of the satanic belief is indulgence instead of abstinence. People often make uh, mistake compulsion for indulgence, but there is a world of difference between the two. A compulsion is never created by indulging, but by not being able to indulge. By making something taboo, it only serves to intensify the desire. Everyone likes to do things that they have been told not to. Forbidden fruits are sweetest. Webster's Encyclopedic Dictionary defines indulgence thusly. To give oneself up to, not to restrain or oppose, to give free course to, to gratify by compliance, to yield to. The dictionary defines a definition of compulsion is the act of compelling or driving by force, physical or mental, constraint of the will, compulsory, obligatory. In other words, indulgence implies choice, whereas compulsion indicates the lack of choice. When a person has no proper release for his desires, they rapidly build up and become compulsions. If everyone had a particular time and place for the purpose of periodically indulging in their personal desires without fear of embarrassment or reproach, they would be sufficiently released to lead unfrustrated lives in the everyday world. They would be free to plunge headlong into whatever undertaking they might choose to instead of going about their duties half-heartedly their creative urges frustrated by denying their natural desires. This would apply to the majority of cases. 
but there will always be those who work better under pressure. Generally, those who need to endure a certain amount of hardship to produce to their full capabilities are in basic uh, are in basically artistic vocations. More will be said later about fulfillment through self-denial. This does not mean to imply that all artists fit into this category. On the contrary, many artists are unable to produce unless their basic animal needs have been satisfied. For the most part, it is not the artistic or individualist, but the average middle-class working man or woman who is lacking the proper release for their desires. It is ironic that the responsible, respectable person, the one who pays society's bills, should be the one given the least in return. It is he who must be ever conscious of his moral obligations and who is condemned for normally indulging in his natural desires. The satanic religion considers that a gross injustice. He who upholds his responsibilities should be most entitled to the pleasures of his choice without censure from the society he serves. Finally, a religion, Satanism, has been formally uh, formed which commends and rewards those who support the society in which they live, instead of denouncing them for their human needs. From every set of principles, be it religious, political, or philosophical, some good can be extracted. Amidst the madness of the Hitlerian concept, one point stands out as a shining example of this. Strength through joy. Hitler was no fool when he offered the German people happiness on a personal level to ensure their loyalty to him and peak efficiency from them. It has been clearly established that the majority of all illnesses are of psychosomatic nature and that these psychosomatic illnesses are a direct result of frustration. It has been said that the good die young. The good, by Christian standards, do die young. It is the frustration of our natural instincts which leads to the premature deterioration of our minds and bodies. It has become very fashionable to concentrate on the betterment of the mind and, and spirit and to consider giving pleasure to one's body, the very shell without which the mind and spirit could not exist, to be coarse, crude, and unrefined. As of late, most people who deem themselves emancipated have left normalcy only to transcend into idiocy by way of bending their backs around to meet their navels, subsisting on wild and exotic diets like brown rice and tea. They feel they will arrive in a great state of spiritual development. Hogwash, says the Satanist. He would rather eat a good hearty meal, exercise his imagination, and transcend by means of physical and emotional fulfillment. It seems to the Satanist that after being harnessed with unreasonable religious demands for so many centuries, one would welcome the chance to be human for once. If anyone thinks that by denying his natural desires he can avoid mediocrity, he should examine the Eastern mystical beliefs, which have been in great intellectual favor in recent years. Christianity is old hat. So those who wish to escape its fetters have turned to the so-called enlightened religions such as Buddhism. Although Christianity is certainly deserving of the criticism it has received, perhaps it has been taking more than its share of the blame. The followers of the mystical belief are every bit as guilty of the little humanisms as the misguided Christians. 
Both religions are based on trite philosophies, but the mystical religionists profess to be enlightened and emancipated from the guilt-ridden dogma which is typified by Christianity. However, the Eastern mystic is even more preoccupied than the Christian with avoiding animalistic actions that remain uh, that remind him he is not a saint, but merely a man, only another form of animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those who walk on all fours, and who, because of his divine spiritual and intellectual development, has become the most vicious animal of all. The Satanist acts, <laughs> asks, what is wrong with being human and having human limitations as well as assets? By denying his desires, the mystic has come no closer to overcoming compulsion than his kindred soul, the Christian. The Eastern mystical beliefs have taught people to contemplate their navels, stand on their heads, stare at blank walls, avoid the use of labels in life, and discipline themselves against any desire for materialistic pleasure. Nevertheless, I am sure you have seen just as many so-called disciplined yogis with the inability to control a smoking habit as anyone else, or just as many supposedly emancipated Buddhists becoming just as excited as a less aware person when they are confronted with a member of the opposite, or in some cases the same, sex. Yet when asked to explain the reason for their hypocrisy, these people retreat into the ambiguousness which characterizes their faith. No one can pin them down if there are no straight answers that can be given. The simple fact of the matter is that the very thing which has led this type of person to a faith which preaches abstinence is indulgence. Their compulsive masochism is the only reason for choosing a religion which not only advocates self-denial, but praises them for it and gives them a sacrosanct avenue of expression for their masochistic needs. The more abuse they can attend, I'm sorry, they can stand, the holier they become. Masochism, to most people, represents a rejection of indulgence. Satanism points out many meanings behind the meanings and considers masochism to be an indulgence if any attempt to sway or change the person from his masochistic trait is met with resentment and or failure. The Satanist does not condemn these people for giving vent to their masochistic desires, but he does feel the utmost contempt toward those who cannot be honest enough, at least with themselves, to face and accept their masochism as a natural part of their personality makeup. Having to use religion as an excuse for their masochism is bad enough, but these people actually have the affront effrontery to feel superior to those who are not bound up in self-deceit expression of their fetishes. These people would be the first to condemn a man who found his weekly release with a person who would beat him soundly, thereby releasing himself from the very thing which would, if unreleased, make him, as they are, a compulsive churchgoer or religious fanatic. By finding adequate release for his masochistic desires, he no longer needs to debate and deny himself in every waking moment, as do these compulsive masochists. Satanists are encouraged to indulge in the seven deadly sins as they need hurt no one. They were only invented by the Christian church to ensure guilt on the part of its followers. The Christian church knows that it is impossible for anyone to avoid committing these sins, as they are all things which we, being human, 
most naturally do. After inevitably committing these sins financial offerings to the church in order to pay off God, are employed as a sop to the parishioner's conscience. Satan has never needed a book of rules because vital natural forces have kept man sinful and intent on preserving himself and his feelings. Nevertheless, demoralizing attempts have been made on his body and being for his soul's sake, which only illustrate how misconceived and misused the labels of indulgence versus compulsion have become. Sexual activity certainly is condoned and encouraged by Satanism, but obviously the fact that it is the only religion which honestly takes this stance is the reason it has been traditionally given so much literary space. Naturally, if most people belong to religions which repress them sexually, anything written on this provocative subject is going to make for titillating reading. If all attempts to sell something, be it a product or an idea, have failed, sex will always sell it. The reason for this is that even though people now consciously accept sex as a normal and necessary function, their subconscious is still bound by the taboo which religion has placed upon it. So again, what is denied is more intensely desired. It is this bugaboo regarding sex which causes the literature devoted to the satanic views on the subject to overshadow all else written about Satanism. The true Satanist is not mastered by sex any more than he is mastered by any of his other desires. As with all other pleasurable things, the Satan is master of rather than mastered by sex. He is not the perverted fiend who is just waiting for the opportunity to deflower every young virgin, nor is he the skulking degenerate who furtively hangs around the dirty bookstores, slavering over the nasty pictures. If pornography fills his needs for the moment, he unashamedly buys some choice items and guiltlessly peruses them at his leisure. We have to accept the fact that man has become disgruntled at being constantly repressed, but we must do everything we can to at least temper the sinful desires of man, lest they run rampant in this new age, says the religionist of the right-hand path to the questioning Satanist. Why continue to think of these desires as shameful and something to be repressed if you now admit they are natural, returns the Satanist. Could it be that the white light religionists are a bit sour grapes about the fact that they didn't think of a religion before the Satanist, which would be enjoyable to follow? And if the truth were known, would they too not like to have a bit more pleasure out of life, but for fear of losing face cannot admit it? Could it also be that they are afraid people who, uh, I'm sorry, could it also be that they are afraid people will, that, that reads strangely to me, that they are afraid people will, after hearing about Satanism, tell themselves, this is for me. Why should I continue with a religion which condemns me for everything? I do, even though there's nothing actually wrong with it. The Satanist thinks this is more than likely true. There is certainly much evidence that past religions are every day lifting more and more of their ridiculous restrictions. Even so, when an entire religion is based on abstinence instead of indulgence, as it should be, there is little left when it has been revised to meet the current needs of man. So, 
why waste time buying oats for a dead horse? The watchword of Satanism is indulgence instead of abstinence. But it is not compulsion. Nice. Sorry, I chopped that one up a bit. Damn, man, that was rough. All right, what do we have here in the chat room? Cooking with Satan. I just love that name. That is so great. Um, yeah, well, here's something that I wanted to touch on really quick before I dive on to the next essay. Again, out of the context of this video, I'm not supposed to be examining this stuff, just reading. Um, the idea that uh, compulsion is not a choice and that you're not even aware of it if you are being compulsive. I don't know if I'm reading into that or not, but I feel like indulgence can lead to compulsion that it does i guess it just depends on whether or not you think inherently you have the capacity of compulsion i don't know interesting conversation think about it what do you think um what are you guys saying in here if so personally i feel though they started at satanism you guys are talking about the beginning of satanism really on this channel it shouldn't even be a debate What's going on? What are you guys doing? What the fuck? All right. Uh, the next one we're going to be reading is on the choice of human sacrifice. A personal favorite. Um, <laughs> I just, I, there are a few things about Satanism I love more than the idea of, uh, uh, of a human sacrifice. Of the reality of the human sacrifice, I should say. Not the... Uh, false belief non-Satanists have about it. It's actually not a long one at all, so I'm going to burn through this one. Uh, thank you guys for joining, by the way. Uh, for those of you just listening and not in the chat room and just hanging out, thanks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you're doing it, but I dig it. So, cheers. All right. I didn't want a mustache out of my mouth. It's everywhere. Curl it up. On the choice of human sacrifice. <laughs> Robert. <laughs> the supposed purpose in performing the ritual of sacrifice is to throw the energy provided by the blood of the freshly slaughtered victim into the atmosphere of the magical working thereby intensifying the magician's chance of success. The white magician assumes that since blood represents the life force, there is no better way to appease the gods or demons than to present them with suitable quantities of it. Combine this rationale with the fact that a dying creature is expending an overabundance of adrenal and other biochemical energies, and you have what appears to be an unbeatable combination. The white magician, wary of the consequences involved in the killing of a human being, naturally utilizes birds or other lower creatures in his ceremonies. It seems these sanctimonious wretches feel no guilt in the taking of a non-human life as opposed to a human's. The fact of the matter is that if the magician is worthy of his name, he will be uninhibited enough to realize the necessary force from his own body instead of from an unwilling and undeserving 
victim. Contrary to all established magical theory, the release of this force is not affected in the actual spilling of blood, but in the death throes of the living creature. This discharge of bioelectrical energy is the very same phenomenon which occurs during any profound heightening of the emotions, such as sexual orgasm, blind anger, mortal terror, consuming grief, etc. Of these emotions, the easiest entered into of one's own volition are sexual orgasm and anger, with grief running a close third. Remembering that the two most readily available of these three, sexual orgasm and anger, have been burned into man's unconscious as sinful by religionists. It is small wonder why they are shunned by the white magician who plods along carrying the greatest of all milestones of guilt. The inhibited and asinine absurdity in the need to kill an innocent living creature at the high point of a ritual as practiced by erstwhile wizards is obviously their lesser of the evils when a discharge of energy is called for. These poor, conscience-stricken fools who have been calling themselves witches and warlocks would sooner chop the head off a goat or chicken in an attempt to harness its death agony than have the blasphemous bravery to masturbate in full view of the Jehovah whom they claim to deny. The only way these mystical cowards can ritualistically release themselves is through the agony of another's death actually their own by proxy, rather than the indulgence force which produces life. The treaders of this path of white light are truly the cold and the dead. No wonder these tittering pustulates of mystical wisdom must stand within protective circles and bind the evil forces in order to keep themselves safe from attack. One good orgasm would probably kill them. The use of a human sacrifice in a satanic ritual does not imply the sacrifice is slaughtered to appease the gods. Symbolically, the victim is destroyed through the working of a hex or curse, which in turn leads to the physical, mental, or emotional destruction of the sacrifice in ways and means not attributable to the magician. The only time a Satanist would perform a human sacrifice would be if it were to serve a twofold purpose that being to release the magician's wrath on the throwing of a curse, and more important, to dispose of a totally obnoxious and deserving individual. Under no circumstances would a Satanist sacrifice any animal or baby. For centuries, propagandists of the right-hand path have been prattling over the supposed sacrifices of small children and voluptuous maidens at the hands of diabolists. It would be thought that anyone reading or hearing of these heinous accounts would immediately question their authenticity, taking into consideration the biased sources of the stories. On the contrary, as with all holy lies, which are accepted without reservation, this assumed modus operandi of the Satanist persists to this day. There are sound logical reasons why the Satanists could not perform such sacrifices. Man, the animal, is the godhead to the Satanist. 
the purest form of carnal existence reposes in the bodies of animals and human children who have not grown old enough to deny themselves their natural desires. They can perceive things that the average adult human can never hope to. Therefore, the Satanist holds these beings in a sacred regard, knowing he can learn much from these natural magicians of the world. The Satanist is aware of the universal custom of the treader of the path of Agarthi, the killing of the god, inasmuch as the gods are always created in man's own image, and the average man hates what he sees in himself, the inevitable must occur, the sacrifice of the god who represents himself. The Satanist does not hate himself, nor the gods he might choose, and has no desire to destroy himself or anything for which he stands. It is for this reason he can never willfully harm an animal or child. The question arises, who then would be considered a fit and proper human sacrifice, and how is one qualified to pass judgment on such a person? The answer is brutally simple. Anyone who has unjustly wronged you, one who has gone out of his way to hurt you, to deliberately cause trouble and hardship for you or those dear to you. In short, a person asking to be cursed by their very actions. When a person, by his reprehensible behavior, practically cries out to be destroyed, it is truly your moral obligation to indulge them their wish. The person who takes every opportunity to pick on others is often mistakenly called sadistic. In reality, this person is a misdirected masochist who is working towards his own destruction. The reason a person viciously strikes out against you is because they are afraid of you or what you represent or are resentful of your happiness. They are weak, insecure, and on extremely shaky ground when you throw your curse, and they make ideal human sacrifices. It is sometimes easy to overlook the actual wrongdoing of the victim of your curse when one considers how unhappy a person he really is. It is not so easy, though, to retrace the damaging footsteps of your antagonist and might, uh, make right those practical situations he or she has made wrong. The ideal sacrifice may be emotionally insecure, but nonetheless can, in the machinations of his insecurity, cause severe damage to your tranquility or sound reputation. Mental illness, nervous breakdown, maladjustment, anxiety, neurosis, broken homes, sibling rivalry, etc., etc., ad infinitum, have too long been convenient excuses for vicious and irresponsible actions. Anyone who says, we must try to understand, those who make life miserable for those undeserving of misery is aiding and abetting a social cancer. The apologists for these rabid humans deserves any clobberings they get at the hands of their charges. Mad dogs are destroyed, and they need help far more than the human who conveniently froths at the mouth when irrational behavior is in order. It is easy to say, so what? These people are insecure, so they can't hurt me. But the fact remains, given the opportunity, they would destroy you. Therefore, you have every right to symbolically destroy 
them. And if your curse proves their actual annihilation, rejoice that you have been instrumental in ridding the world of a pest. If your success or happiness disturbs a person, you owe him nothing. He is made to be trampled underfoot. If people had to take the consequences of their own actions, they would think twice. I love that dude. I love that man. Um, I actually don't have any social media at all. This channel is the extent of it. For better or worse. Uh, yeah, and, and the truth is, um, we've known every one of us, statistically, have run across people who are just begging to be gotten rid of. And if you're affected, why not do it? No skin off your hide. Here, here, Robert. All right. Um, what else do we have here? Hell destruction rights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instructions unclear. Greeted the Jehovah Witnesses masturbating. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> you know what, Camplicious? Nice name, Camplicious. Um, my kids hear everything because I'm loud. And so, <laughs> for better or worse, they're getting these as bedtime stories. It's in their fucking subconscious, if not overt awareness. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, I'm not really doing new videos, Austin. Uh, I'm just sort of playing. This is me just having fun, you know? And if you guys have fun too, awesome. And if you don't, fuck off. That's how I take it. Uh, the next one that we're going to be going through is life after death through fulfillment of the ego. Ooh, I like that idea. Uh, cooking with Satan, that's, that's a valid way of doing it. Um, the only downside to that is that they are free to bug your others that you love and you care for. If they can't get to you and they really want to get to you, they're going to get to those around you. Otherwise, they're just asshats that aren't really asking for it. They're just being asshats. I think it's our responsibility as Satanists to react to those who are affronting us. And you may get shit for it, but in the end, if you're not fooling yourself, you'll always come out on top. Always. All right, let's 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 get into this. I feel like my mustache is taking over my mouth. <laughs> I've got to do something about this. All right, here we go. And I smash their face. I like that. Life after death through fulfillment of the ego. Man is aware that he will die someday. Other animals, when nearing death, know they're about to die. But it is not until death is certain that the animal senses his coming departure from this world. And even then, he does not know exactly what is entailed in dying. 
It is often pointed out that animals accept death gracefully without fear or resistance. This is, be beautifully, uh, this is a beautiful concept, but one that holds true in cases where death for the animal is unavoidable. When an animal is sick or injured, he will fight for his life with every ounce of strength he has left. It is this unshakable will to live that, if man were not so highly evolved, would also give him the fighting spirit he needs to stay alive. It is a well-known fact that many people die simply because they give up and just don't care anymore. This is understandable if the person is very ill with no apparent chance for recovery, but this often is not the case. Man has become lazy. He has learned to take the easy way out. Even suicide has become less repugnant to many people than any number of other sins. Religion is totally to blame for this. Death in most religions is touted as a great spiritual awakening, one which is prepared for throughout life. This concept is very appealing to one who has not had a satisfactory life, but to those who have experienced all the joy life has to offer, there is a great dread attached to dying. This is as it should be. It is this lust for life which will allow the vital person to live on after the inevitable death of his fleshly shell. History shows that men who have given their own lives in pursuit of an ordeal have been deified for their martyrdom. Religionists and political leaders have been very crafty in laying their plans. By holding the martyr up as a shining example to his fellow men, they eliminate the common-sense reaction that willful self-destruction goes against all animal logic. To the Satanist, martyrdom and non-personalized heroism is to be associated not with integrity, but with stupidity. This, of course, does not apply in situations which involve the safety of a loved one. But to give one's own life for something as impersonal as a political or religious issue is the ultimate in masochism. Life is the one great indulgence. Death, the one great abstinence. To a person who is satisfied with his earthly existence, life is like a party. And no one likes to leave a good party. By the same token, if a person is enjoying himself here on earth, he will not so readily give up his life for the promise of an afterlife about which he knows nothing. The Eastern myth, uh, mystical belief teaches humans to discipline themselves against any conscious will for success so they might dissolve themselves into universal cosmic awareness. Anything to avoid good, healthy self-satisfaction or honest pride in earthly accomplishments. It is interesting to note that the areas in which this type of belief flourishes are those where material gains are not easily obtainable. For this reason, the predominant religious belief must be one which commends its followers for their rejection of material things and their avoidance of the use of labels which attaches a certain amount of importance to material gain. In this way, the people can, can be pacified into accepting their lot, no matter how small it may be. Satanism uses many labels. If it were not for names, very few of us would understand anything in life, much less attach any significance to it. And significance compels recognition, which is something everyone wants especially the Eastern mystic who tries to prove to everyone how he can meditate longer or stand more deprivation and pain than the next fellow. 
The Eastern philosophies preach the dissolution of man's ego before he can produce sins. It is unfathomable to the Satanist to conceive of an ego which would willfully choose denial of itself. In countries where this is used as a sop for the willingly impoverished, it is understandable that a philosophy which teaches the denial of the ego would serve as useful purpose, at least for those in power to whom it would be detrimental if their people were discontented. But for anyone who has every opportunity for material gain to choose this form of religious thought seems foolish indeed. The Eastern mystic believes strongly in reincarnation. To a person who has virtually nothing in his life, the possibility that, may ha that he may have been a king in a past life or may be one in the next life is very attractive and does much to appease his need for self-respect. If there is nothing in which they can take pride in in this life, they can console themselves by thinking there are always future lives. It never occurs to the believer in reincarnation that if his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, etc., had developed good karmas by their adherence to the same beliefs and ethics as his present ones, then why is he now living in privation rather than like a Maharaja? Belief in reincarnation provides a beautiful fantasy world in which a person can find a proper avenue of ego expression but at the same time claimed to have dissolved his ego. This is emphasized by the roles people choose for themselves in their past or future lives. Believers in reincarnation do not always choose an honorable character. If the person is of a highly respectable and conservative nature, he will often choose a colorful rogue or gangster, thereby fulfilling his alter ego. Or a woman who has much a social status may pick a harlot, or a famous courtesan for the characterization of herself in a past life. If people were able to divorce themselves from the stigma attached to personal ego fulfillment, they would not need to play self-deceitful games such as belief in reincarnation as a means of satisfying their natural need for ego fulfillment. The Satanist believes in complete gratification of his ego. Satanism, in fact, is the only religion which advocates the intensification or encouragement of the ego. Only if a person's own ego is sufficiently fulfilled can he afford to be kind and complimentary to others without robbing himself of his self-respect. We generally think of a braggart as a person with a large ego. In reality, his bragging results from a need to satisfy his impoverished ego. Religionists have kept their followers in line by suppressing their egos, by making their followers feel inferior. The awesomeness of their God is ensured. Satanism encourages its members to develop a good, strong ego because it gives them the self-respect necessary for a vital existence in this life. If a person has been vital throughout his life and has fought to the end of his earthly existence, and it is this ego which will refuse to die, even after the expiration of the flesh which housed it. Young children are to be admired for their driving enthusiasm for life. This is exemplified by the small child who refuses to go to bed when there is something exciting going on, and once put to bed, will sneak down the stairs to peek through the curtains and watch. 
It is this childlike vitality that will allow the Satanist to peek through the curtain of darkness and death and remain earthbound. Self-sacrifice is not encouraged by the Satanic religion. Therefore, unless death comes as an indulgence because of extreme circumstances which make the termination of life a welcomed relief from the unendurable earthly existence, suicide is frowned upon by the satanic religion. Religious martyrs have taken their own lives, not because life was intolerable for them, but to use their supreme sacrifice as a tool to further their religious belief. We must assume, then, that suicide, if done for the sake of the church, is condoned and even encouraged, even though their scriptures label it a sin, because religious martyrs of the past have always been deified. It is rather curious that the only time suicide is considered sinful by other religions is when it comes as an indulgence. Wah! Alright. An hour twenty. My goodness. What do you guys think about that? There was a lot of suggestion in that last chapter about the possibility of the ego existing after the body has died. What does that mean? Again, outside the context of this video, so I'm not going to talk about it. But interesting. Interesting to contemplate. Um, did this martyr subject have any effect on leaving your soldier days years back? No, I actually left the military because I I was I was a sergeant in charge of uh, three soldiers. I ran a communication shop and I didn't like spending time mentoring soldiers who didn't want to improve themselves and wouldn't listen and wouldn't do their damn jobs. I was responsible for their shit behavior and I was tired of dealing with it. And you can play that off as I wasn't a good leader or they just weren't good students or we weren't good matches together as leader and student. Uh, it's not really student, it's soldier. But either way, it was, I was not finding any fulfillment as a leader in the military. And so as soon as my um, uh, contract was up, I left. It was that simple. And then I found fucking success because I focused on me, which is what I wanted to do the whole fucking time. But I couldn't. Yeah, because I'm a Satanist. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> That's how we roll. <laughs> Good on you, J-Dub. Five was my limit. And thank you for your service, man. My goodness. All right, uh, we're not going to get into that. So, uh, religious holidays is next. And then we got the Black Mass. <laughs> I love the Black Mass. Okay, religious holidays is good. We got a whole lot of them. I am not on LinkedIn. Uh, what a, what a boo. All right, have a good one, Sparkling. <laughs> I read that differently. I thought you were saying your wife was calling for pleasure. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, you go, man. <laughs> but that's not what it says. <laughs> <clears throat> Thanks, Jim. Raised on the Church of Christ? Oh, boy, I'm sorry, man. That's a lot to take in. 
All right, let's do this. <clears throat> Religious holidays. I'm on a roll. Let's knock this book out, huh? Religious holidays. The highest of all holidays is the satanic religion. I'm going to start that over. <clears throat> the highest holiday. Fuck me. Maybe I'm not on a roll. Maybe I just hit my wall and I just didn't realize it. <laughs> God damn. <clears throat> Take three. Religious holidays. The highest of all holidays in the satanic religion is the date of one's own birth. This is in direct contrast to the holy of holy days of other religions, which deify a particular god who has been created in an anthropomorphic form of their own image, thereby showing that the ego is not really buried. The Satanist feels, why not really be honest? And if you're going to create a god in your own image, why not create that god as yourself? Every man is a god if he chooses to recognize himself as one. So, the Satanist celebrates his own birthday as the most important holiday of the year. After all, aren't you happier about the fact that you were born than you are about the birth of someone you have never even met? Or for that matter, aside from religious holidays, why pay higher tribute to the birthday of a president or to a date in history than we do to the day we were brought into the greatest of all worlds? Despite the fact that some of us may not have been wanted, or at least were not particularly planned, we're glad, even if no one else is, that we're here. You should give yourself a pat on the back. Buy yourself whatever you want. Treat yourself like a king or god that you are. And generally celebrate your birthday with as much pomp and ceremony as possible. After one's own birthday, the two major satanic holidays all are... Valpurgisnacht and Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve. Saint Valpurgis, or Valperga, or Valperga. That's the exact same word. <laughs> it says, or Valperga. Oh, Valperga, sorry. Let me start that again. Saint Valpurgis, or Valperga, or Valberga, depending upon the time and area in which one is referring to her, was born in Sussex about the end of the 7th or the beginning of the 8th century, and was educated at Winburn, Dorset. While after taking the veil, she remained for 27 years. She then, at the insistence of her uncle, St. Boniface, and her brother, St. Villebald, set out along with some other nuns to found religious houses in Germany. Her first settlement was at Bischofsheim, in the Diocese of Mainz, and two years later, 754 AD, she became abbess of the Benedictine nunnery at Hiddenheim, within her brother Wilbald's Diocese of Eckstadt in Bavaria, where another brother, Weinbald, had at the same time also been head of a monastery. On the death of Weinbald in 760, she succeeded him in his charge, retaining the superintendent of both houses until her death on February 25th, 779. Her relics were translated to Eichstadt, where she was laid in a hollow rock, from which exuded all kind of bituminous oil, afterwards known as Valpurgis oils, regarded as having miraculous efficacy against disease. The cave became a place of pilgrimage, and a great church was built over the spot. 
She's commemorated at various times, but principally on May 1st, her day taking the place of an earlier pagan festival. Amazingly enough, all of this rigmarole was found necessary simply to condone the continuance of the most important pagan festival of the year, the grand climax of the spring equinox. The eve of May has been memorialized as the night of all the demons, specters, afrites, and banshees would come forth and hold their wild revels, symbolizing the fruition of the spring equinox. Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, or All Saints' Day, falls on October 31st, or November 1st. Originally, All Hallows' Eve was one of the great fire festivals of Britain at the time of the Druids. In Scotland, it was associated with the time when the spirits of the dead, the demons, witches, and sorcerers were unusually active and propitious. Paradoxically, All Hallows' Eve was also the night when young people performed magical rituals to determine their future marriage partners. The youth of the villages carried on with such merry-making and sensual revelry, but the older people took great care to safeguard their homes from the evil spirits, witches, and demons who had exceptional power that night. The solstices and equinoxes are also celebrated as holidays, but they herald the first day of the seasons. The difference between a solstice and an equinox is a semantic one, defining the relationship between the sun, moon, and the fixed stars. The solstice applies to summer and winter, and the equinox refers to autumn and spring. The summer solstice is in June, and the winter solstice is in December. The autumn equinox is in September, and the spring equinox is in March. Both the equinoxes and the solstices vary a day or two from year to year, depending on the lunar cycle at the time, but usually fall on the 21st or 22nd of the month. Five to six weeks after these days, the legendary satanic revels are celebrated. That was a quick one. Not too bad. Uh, Halloween costumes. I already bitched about that, but I love hearing what other people have done. Oh, man. Naughty nuns. Yeah. I would like to have been a, a fly on the wall of a nunnery. Because I bet there was a lot of mundane, just spiteful, uh, just terrible nuns out there. But I bet there was a couple pretty sexy ones. And even if it's one in a thousand... If I could be a fly on the wall of that one, mm, mm, mm. I want to revise my previous sexual statement as to include nuns. <laughs> I need a man. I love me some nun. <laughs> there was a comic I saw once, and I, I, I was, it was years ago. It was like in the, the mid 90s. Uh, not like a, it was like an adult comic. Like a graphic novel type adult comic. But it had like nuns sexually like a, assaulting each other in like the name of some demon that took over this convent. If I could find that, oh boy, would I have some in the bank for it. My goodness. Hey, what's up, Robert? Thanks for joining us, man. Uh, that would be, that would be nice. If you guys, any of you know what I'm talking about. But you know what we got next? You want to talk about nuns. You want to talk about sexy. We got the black mass. 
This is so good, dude. <laughs> Jason, that's right. That I'll tell you what though, that scene in The Exorcist, I can't take it. I I, I like hide it from my kids. I won't let them watch it when um, the demon has possession of um, the young girl, and it's like fuck Jesus, fuck Jesus. I can't. I can't handle that. I can't let them watch that. It's like really disturbing. <laughs> like. For whatever reason, I mean, there's a, a number of reasons why it's, it's disturbing, but I <laughs> can't handle that shit. Uh, did you get the text about my book? Uh, yeah, I think I did. And uh, I think maybe I forgot to respond to you, if I'm being honest. Uh, okay, so the Black Mass. Let's do this thing. We're at 132. I think I'm going to stop at two hours. You got half an hour left in me. You know what I wish is I wish I had the bottle of wine here. And like a tube <laughs> running into my mouth, like a long straw, a tube, like I'm going to invent the straw because I forgot the name. I had a straw so I could just read and then, you know, that'd be good. It's a long tube. <laughs> Fucking dumbass. <clears throat> Here we go. I love this so much. The Black Mass. No other single device has been associated with Satanism as much as the Black Mass. To say that the most blasphemous of all religious ceremonies is nothing more than a literary invention is certainly a statement which needs qualifying, but nothing could be truer. The popular concept of the Black Mass is thus. A defrocked priest stands before an altar consisting of a nude woman, her legs spread eagled and vagina thrust open, each of her outstretched fists grasping a black candle made from the fat of unbaptized babies and a chalice containing the urine of a prostitute or blood reposing on her belly. An inverted cross hangs above the altar and triangular hosts of ergot-laden bread or black-stained turnip are methodically blessed as the priest dutifully sips them in and out of the altar lady's labia. Then we are told an invocation to Satan and various demons is followed by an array of prayers and psalms chanting backwards or interspersed with obscenities, all performed within the confines of a protective pentagram drawn on the floor. If the devil appears, he is invariably in the form of a rather eager man wearing the head of a black goat upon his shoulders. Then follows a potpourri of flagellations, prayer book burnings, cunnilingus, fellatio, and general hindquarters kissing, all done to a background of ribald recitations from the Holy Bible and audible expectorations on the cross. If a baby can be slaughtered during the ritual, so much the better, for as everyone knows, this is the favorite sport of the Satanist. If, the sounds, if this sounds repugnant, then the success of the reports of the Black Mass in keeping the devote in church is easy to understand. No decent person could fail to side with the inquisitors when told of these blasphemies. The propagandists of the church did their job well, informing the public at one time or another of the heresies and heinous acts of the pagans, Cathars, Bogomils, Templars, and others who, because of their dualistic philosophies and sometimes satanic logic, had to be eradicated. 
The stories of unbaptized babies being stolen by Satanists for use in the Mass were not only effective propaganda measures, but also provided a constant source of revenue for the Church in the form of baptism fees. No Christian mother would, upon hearing of these diabolical kidnappings, refrain from getting her child properly baptized post-haste. Another facet of man's nature was apparent in the fact that the writer or artist with lewd thoughts could exercise his most obscene predilections on the portrayal of the activities of heretics. The censor who views all pornography so that he will know what to warn others of is the modern equivalent of the medieval chronicler of the obscene deeds of the Satanist and, of course, their modern journalistic counterparts. It is believed that the most complete library of pornography in the world is owned by the Vatican. The kissing of the devil's behind during the traditional black mass is easily recognized as the forerunner of the modern term used to describe one who will, through appealing to another's ego, gain materially from him. As all satanic ceremonies were performed towards very real or material goals, the oscularum in fame or kissing of shame, was considered a symbolic requisite towards earthly rather than spiritual success. The usual assumption of that, the usual assumption is that the satanic ceremony or service is always called a black mass. A black mass is not the magical ceremony practiced by Satanists. The Satanist would only employ the use of a black mass as a form of psychodrama, Furthermore, the Black Mass does not necessarily imply that the performers of such are Satanists. A Black Mass is essentially a parody on the religious service of the Roman Catholic Church, but can be loosely applied to a satire on any religious ceremony. To the Satanist, the Black Mass, in its blaspheming of Orthodox rites, is nothing more than a redundancy. The services of all Established religions are actually parodies of old rituals performed by the worshippers of the earth and the flesh in attempts to desexualize and dehumanize the pagan beliefs. Later, men of spiritual faith whitewashed the honest meanings behind the rituals in the bland euphemisms now considered to be the true mass. Even if the Satanists were to spend each night performing a black mass, he would no more be performing a travesty than the devout churchgoer who unwittingly attends his own black mass, his spoof on the honest and emotionally sound rites of pagan antiquity. Any ceremony considered a black mass must effectively shock and outrage, as this seems to be the measure of its success. In the Middle Ages, blaspheming the Holy Church was shocking. Now, however, the Church does not present an awesome image it did during the Inquisition. The traditional Black Mass is no longer the outraged spectacle to the dilettante or renegade priest that it once was. If the Satanist wishes to create a ritual to blaspheme an accepted institution for the, purchase, for the purpose of psychodrama, he is careful to choose one that is not in vogue to parody. Thus, he is truly stepping on a sacred cow. A black mass today would consist of the blaspheming of such sacred topics as Eastern mysticism, psychiatry, the psychedelic movement, ultra-liberalism, etc. 
patriotism would be championed. Drugs and their gurus would be defiled. A cultural militants would be deified. And the decadence of ecclesiastical theologies might even be given a satanic boost. The satanic magus has always been the catalyst for the dichotomy necessary in molding popular beliefs, and in this case, a ceremony in the nature of a black mass may serve a far-reaching magical purpose. In the year 1666, some rather interesting events occurred in France, with the death of Francis Mansart, the architect of the trapezoid, whose geometrics were to become the prototype of the haunted house. The Palace of Versailles was being constructed in accordance with his plan. The last of the glamorous priests, priestesses of Satan, Jean-Marie Beauvier, Madame Guyon, was to be overshadowed by the shrewd opportunist and callous businesswoman named Catherine Deschaise, otherwise known as La Voisine. Here was an erstwhile beautician who, while dabbling in abortions and purveying the most efficient poisons to ladies desirous of eliminating unwanted husbands or lovers, found in the lurid accounts of the Messes Noir a proverbial brainstorm. It is safe to say that 1666 was the year of the first commercial Black Mass in the region south of St. Denis, which is now called La Garnette, La Garenne, a great walled house was purchased by La Vosin and fitted with dispensaries, cells, laboratories, and a chapel. Soon it became de rigueur for royalty and lesser dilettantes to attend and participate in the very type of service mentioned earlier in this chapter. The organized fraud perpetrated in these ceremonies has become indelibly marked in history as the true Black Mass. When La Voisin was arrested in March 13, 1679, in the Church of Our Blessed Lady of Good Tidings, incidentally, the die had already been cast. The degraded activities of La Voisin has stifled the majesty of Satanism for many years to come. The Satanism for fun and games fad never appeared, uh, next appeared in England in the middle 18th century in the form of Sir Francis Dashwood's Order of the Medmanham, Franciscans, popularly called the Hellfire Club. While eliminating the blood, gore, and baby fat candles of the previous century's masses, Sir Francis managed to conduct rituals replete with good, dirty fun, and certainly provided a colorful and harmless form of psychodrama for many of the leading lights of the period. An interesting side of Sir Francis, which lends a clue to the climate of the Hellfire Club, was a group called the Dilettanti Club, of which he was the founder. It was the 19th century that brought the whitewashing to Satanism in the feeble attempts of white magicians trying to perform black magic. This was a very paradoxical period for Satanism, with writers such as Baudelaire and Hirismans, who, despite their apparent obsession with evil, seemed nice enough fellows. The devil developed his Luciferian personality for the public to see and gradually evolved into a sort of drawing-room gentleman. This was the area of experts in the black arts, such as Eliphas Levi and countless trance mediums who, with their carefully bound spirits and demons, 
have also succeeded in binding the minds of many who call themselves parapsychologists to this day. As far as Satanism was concerned, the closest outward signs of this were the neo-pagan rites conducted by McGregor Mathard's Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and Aleister Crowley's later Order of the Silver Star, A.A. Argentinum Astrum, and Order of Oriental Templars, O.T.O., which paranoically denied any association with Satanism, despite Crowley's self-imposed image of the Beast of Revelation. Aside from some rather charming poetry and a smattering of magical bric-a-brac, when none climbing mountains, Crowley's... When not climbing mountains, Crowley spent most of his time as a poser par excellence and worked overtime to be wicked. Like his contemporary, Reverend Montague Summers, Crowley obviously spent a large part of his life with his tongue jammed firmly into his cheek. But his followers today are somehow able to read esoteric meaning into his every word. Perennially concurrent with these societies were the sex clubs using Satanism as a rationale that persists today, for which tabloid newspaper writers may give thanks. If it appears that the Black Mass developed from a literary invention of the church to a depraved commercial actuality, to a psychodrama for dilettantes and iconoclasts, to an ace in the hole for popular media, then where does it fit into the true nature of Satanism and who was practicing satanic magic in those years beyond 1666? The answer to this riddle lies in another. Is the person generally considered to be a Satanist really practicing Satanism in its true sense, or rather, from the point of view taken by the opinion makers, of heavenly persuasion. It has often been said, and rightly so, that all of the books about the devil have been written by the agents of God. It is, therefore, quite easy to understand how a certain breed of devil worshippers was created through the inventions of theologians. This erstwhile evil character is not necessary, uh, necessarily practicing true Satanism, nor is he a living embodiment of the element of untrammeled pride or majesty of self which gave the post-pagan world the churchman's definition of evil. He is instead the byproduct of later and more elaborate propaganda. The pseudo-Satanist has always managed to appear through modern history with his black masses of varying degrees of blasphemy. But the real Satanist is not quite so easily recognized as such. It would be an oversimplification to say that every successful man and woman on earth is, without knowing it, a practicing Satanist. But the thirst for earthly success and its ensuing realization are certainly grounds for St. Peter turning thumbs down. If the rich man's entry into heaven seems as difficult as the camel's attempt to go through the eye of a needle, if the love of money is the root of all evil, then we must at least assume the most powerful men on earth to be the most satanic. This applies to financiers, industrialists, popes, poets, dictators, and all assorted opinion makers and field marshalers of the world's activities. Occasionally, through leakages, one of the enigmatic men or women of earth will be found to have dabbled in the black arts. 
These, of course, are brought to light as the mystery men of history. Names like Rasputin, Zaharoff, Cagliostro, Rosenberg, and their ilk are links, clues, so to speak, of the true legacy of Satan, a legacy which transcends ethnic, racial, and economic differences and temporal ideologies as well. The Satanist has always ruled the earth and always will by whatever name he is called. One thing stands sure. The standards, philosophy, and practices set forth on these pages are those employed by the most self-realized and powerful humans on earth. In the secret thoughts of each man and woman, still motivated by sound and unclouded minds, resides the potential of the Satanist, as always has been. The sign of the horns shall appear to many now, rather than the few, and the magician will stand forth that he may be recognized. Hell yeah. It's great. It's great. I, the doctor had a way with words, right? He could just take something that you're just sort of like, uh, okay, this is a sound idea. This is nice. And then just flip it with this infernal fucking match. And then it's just burning in your mind as you're reading it. That's great. That's great. Oh, man. Uh, just so you know, we are at the uh, next book, Book of Earth, Book of Belial, Mastery of the Earth. Mm. To think. <laughs> I don't want to cast dispersions, but I'm going to cast some dispersions. To think that some Satanists only apply this part of Satanism and not this part. <laughs> as soon as they hit magic in the Satanic Bible, they're just like, I'm out. See ya. Everything else is great. Just can't handle the magic. It says more about them than anything else. <laughs> Pretty crazy, right? Um, all right, what do we have in the chat? What are you guys talking about? Motel 6, room 66, meetings at 6. I have to tell you, though, man, some of that, that beginning uh, nonsense, black mass um, shenanigans, kind of attractive to me. <laughs> I'm being honest. I dig that stuff. I really do. Ugh. Gah. Introct speaks. I don't know what that means, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I'm in SoCal. Good for you. Hope you guys aren't uh, in SoCal. You're away from the fires, right? Stay away from them. Oh, man. You got people in Georgia. God, dude, I love. I love Georgia. I was in Fort Gordon, Georgia in 1997 for training uh, in the U.S. Army. I, there's nothing... Let me correct that. There are a few things more gorgeous than Georgia. God, it's so great. And it's one of those wonderful places, at least in Augusta, um, where I was... Uh, where you could turn on some muddy waters or some robert johnson and go driving just driving through towns 
and you felt like you were back in time. It was a pure time travel device. Georgia in and of itself, when and where I was there. It was great. It was great. I love Georgia. I'll always have a strong place in my heart for Georgia. Uh, what else are you guys doing? Where else are you guys from? That's wild, right? <laughs> Starting to sound a lot like Bible camp in Missouri. <laughs> oh, I can bring the preacher down if I got to. <laughs> can I get a hail Satan? <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I do get to it. Um, all right, let's move on to the next bit. Should we move on to magic? It's 152. Should I break into magic or should I just wait? Uh, decisions, decisions, decisions. I do love the theory and practice of magic, man. Let's do that before we go. I'm going to do that. Kansas. You're the only thing in Kansas. Man. New Hampshire. Good on you, Will. All right, let's do this. We're going to get into this. Fuck it. Just a little bit longer, and then I'll call it quits. Thank you guys so much for tuning in for so long. This is really great of you. Like, I love this. And it's fun just seeing you guys chatting and chatting with you. I like hanging out with you. Thanks. Earth, the book of Belial, the mastery of the earth. The greatest appeal of magic is not in its application, but in the esoteric meanderings, the element of mystery, which so heavily enshrouds the practice of the black arts, has been fostered deliberately or out of ignorance by those who often claim the highest expertise in such matters. If the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, then established occultists would do well as maze makers. The basic principles of ceremonial magic have been relegated for so long to infinitely classified bits of scholastic mysticism that the would-be wizard becomes the victim of the very art of misdirection which he himself should be employing. An analogy may be drawn of the student of applied psychology who, through knowing all of the answers, cannot make friends. What goody, what good is a study of falsehoods unless everyone believes in falsehoods? Many, of course, do believe in falsehoods, but still act according to natural law. It is upon this premise that satanic magic is based. This is a primer, a basic text on materialistic magic. It is a satanic McGuffey's reader. Belial means without a master and symbolizes true independence, self-sufficiency, and personal accomplishment. Belial represents the earth element, and herein will be found magic with both feet on the ground, real, hardcore, magical procedure not mystical platitudes devoid of objective reason. Probe no longer. Here is bedrock. The Theory and Practice of Satanic Magic Definition and Purpose The definition of magic, as used in this book, is the change in situations or events in accordance with one's will, which would, using normally accepted methods, be unchangeable. This admittedly leaves a large area for personal interpretation, 
It will be said by some that these instructions and procedures are nothing more than applied psychology or scientific fact, called by magical terminology, until they arrive at a passage in the text that is based on no known scientific finding. It is for this reason that no attempt has been made to limit the explanations set forth to a set nomenclature. Magic is never totally scientifically explainable, but science has always been, at one time or another, considered magic. There is no difference between white and black magic, except in the smug hypocrisy, guilt-ridden righteousness, and self-deceit of the white magician himself. In the classical religious tradition, white magic is performed for altruistic, benevolent, and good purposes, while black magic is used for self-aggrandizement, personal power, and evil purposes. No one on earth ever pursued occult studies, metaphysics, yoga, or any other white light concept without ego gratification and personal power as a goal. It just so happens that some people enjoy wearing hair shirts and others prefer velvet or silk. What is pleasure to one is pain to another, and the same applies to good and evil. Every practitioner of witchcraft is convinced that he or she is doing the right thing. Magic falls into two categories, ritual or ceremonial, and non-ritual or manipulative. Ritual magic consists of the performance of a formal ceremony, taking place at least in part within the confines of an area set aside for such purposes and at a specific time. Its main function is to isolate the otherwise dissipated adrenal and other emotionally induced energy and convert it into a dynamically transmittable force. It is purely an emotional rather than intellectual act. Any and all intellectual activity must take place before the ceremony, not during it. This type of magic is sometimes known as greater magic. Non-ritual or manipulative magic, sometimes called lesser magic, consists of the wile and guile obtained through various devices and contrived situations which, when utilized, can create change in accordance with one's will. In olden times, this would be called fascination, glamour, or the evil eye. Most of the victims of the witch trials were not witches. Often, the victims were eccentric old women who were either senile or did not conform to society. Others were exceptionally attractive women who turned the heads of the men in power and were not responsive to their advancement, advances. The real witches were rarely executed or even brought to trial as they were proficient in the art of enchantment and could charm the men and save their own lives. Most of the real witches were sleeping with the inquisitors. This is the origin of the word glamour. The antiquated meaning of glamour is witchcraft. The most important asset to the modern witch is her ability to be alluring or to utilize glamour. The word fascination has a similarly occult origin. Fascination was the term applied to the evil eye. To fix a person's gaze, in other words, fascinate, was to curse them with the evil eye. Therefore, if a woman had the ability to fascinate men, she was regarded as a witch. Learning to effectively utilize the command to look 
is an integral part of a witch's or warlock's training. To manipulate a person, you must first be able to attract and hold his attention. The three methods by which the command to look can be accomplished are the utilization of sex, sentiment, or wonder, or any combination of these, a witch must honestly decide into which category she most naturally falls. The first category, that of sex, is self-evident. If a woman is attractive or sexually appealing, she should do everything in her power to make herself as enticing as possible, thereby using sex as her most powerful tool. Once she has gained the man's attention by using her sex appeal, she is free to manipulate him to her will. The second category is sentiment. Usually older women fit into this category. This would include the cookie lady type witch, who might live in a little cottage and be thought of by people as being a bit eccentric. Children are usually enchanted by the fantasy that this type of witch can provide for them, and young adults seek her out for sage-like advice. Through their innocence, children can recognize her magical power. By conforming to an image of the sweet old lady next door, she can employ the art of misdirection to accomplish her goals. The third category is the wonder theme. This category would apply to the women uh, to the woman who is strange or awesome in her appearance. By making her strange appearance work for her, she can manipulate people simply because they are fearful of the consequences should they not do as she asks. Many women fit into more than one of these categories. For example, the young girl who has an appearance of freshness and innocence, but at the same time is very sexy, combines sex and sentiment. Or the femme fatale, who combines sex appeal with sinister overtones, uses sex and wonder. After evaluating her assets, each witch must decide into which category or combination of categories she fits, and then utilize these assets to their proper form. To be a successful warlock, a man must similarly fit himself into the proper category. The handsome or sexually appealing man would naturally fit into the first category, sex. The second, or sentiment category, would apply to the older man who has, perhaps, an elfin or forest wizard appearance. The sweet old grandpa, often dirty old man, would also be in the sentiment category. The third type would be the man who presents a sinister or diabolic appearance. Each of these men would apply his particular brand of the command to look in much the same way as the women previously described. Visual imagery utilized for emotional reaction is certainly the most important device incorporated in the practice of lesser magic. Anyone who is foolish enough to say looks don't mean a thing is indeed deluded. Good looks are unnecessary, but looks certainly are needed. Odor is another important manipulative factor in lesser magic. Remember, animals fear and distrust anyone or anything that doesn't smell. And even though we may, as human animals, deny many of the judgments based on this sense consciously, we are still motivated by our sense of smell just as surely as all four animals. If you are a man and wish to enchant a woman, allow the natural secretions of your body to pervade the atmosphere immediately around you and work in animalistic contrast to the vestments of social politeness that you wear upon your back. If you, as a woman, wish to bewitch a man, do not fear that you might offend simply because the oils and fragrances of your flesh have not been scrubbed away or that place between your thighs is not dry and sterile.
These natural odors are the sexual stimulants which nature, in her magical wisdom, has provided. The sentiment stimulants are those odors that will appeal to pleasant memories and nostalgia. The enchanting of a man through his stomach is first established by the smell of cooking, a sentiment type of which will find this one of the most useful of all charms. It is not so facetious to dwell upon the techniques of the man who wished to charm the young lady who had been displaced from her home of childhood joys, which happened to be a fishing village. Wise to the ways of lesser magic, he neatly tucked a mackerel into his trousers pocket and reaped the rewards that great fondness may often bring. <laughs> That's the end of that. Um, the next is uh, greater magic. Oh man, we are so close. I'm not going to go in any further. Two hours, I think, is a good time to stop. <laughs> is that a mackerel in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Fucking mackerel. Weird. Uh, Alright, that's it, people. Uh, thank you, Pushing, for tuning in. I appreciate you, man. And everyone else, uh, you guys are fucking awesome. I do genuinely appreciate it. Thank you for your attention and your time. I know you could be doing and watching or viewing anything you want right now. And the fact that you're hanging out with a bunch of other Satanists, that's kind of cool. You know, we don't always get to do that. So when we get an opportunity... It's nice to indulge. Well, indulgence is always good for you, right? Um, I think uh, I'm going to be coming back to this. I don't know when. Maybe in a couple weeks or something. Uh, and we'll finish it. And then we'll move on to other things. I'm saying we as if it's not just one dude. I will come back and read this. I hope you guys uh, consider coming back with me and enjoying these and having the conversations and and thinking about these wonderful ideas that are brought forth by the doctor, the founder of this wonderful religion of ours that is still so mysterious and enticing. It's just pure fucking magic. So, to 50 more fucking years. Hail Satan.